This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is uh, Cam Carter, and I'm the director of the Behavioral Health Center uh, for Excellence. Uh, I wanted to tell you a little bit about that center uh, before we got going with our speaker today. Um, our center was funded uh, a year and a half ago. It was funded uh, uh, by the state of California um, with uh, funds actually from uh, the Mental Health Services Act Oversight and Accountability Commission. And uh, uh, what we were asked to do uh, with this center was a number of things. So we were asked to innovate and the center has invested in a significant number of research projects related to the whole range of mental health related research, everything from very basic science all the way through to clinical neuroscience using brain imaging technologies and other approaches to uh, services research and outcomes research uh, oriented towards developing better systems of care that uh, have uh, a, a positive outcome for people with serious mental illness. Um, we were also um, asked to evaluate. Uh, this was a big motivation for the center to develop uh, the ability, the capacity and the tools to do outcomes evaluation for our mental health services so that we could evaluate the impact of innovative services as they rolled out into the community. And then the third thing that uh, we were asked to do, and this was a big part of, uh, this was a big part of the motivation for the center. And I want to acknowledge uh, Rusty actually, because he, he along with Dr. Hales, um, were a part of the discussions uh, with Senator Darrell Steinberg that ultimately led, led to the sort of crystallization of this concept and to the funding of our center. Um, so, uh, so we innovate, uh, we evaluate, and, uh, and in the end, our goal is to leverage the, the strength that UC Davis has in neuroscience and mental health research to provide a resource to the state of California through our outcomes uh, capacity and ultimately to have a really positive impact on mental health here in the state. Uh, I am uh, um, uh, going now to turn the podium over to uh, our introducer who is going to tell us uh, a little bit about Rusty and his background, his contributions, and then we're going to hear from Rusty himself. So please. It's good to see everybody. Um, I'm so heartened at the uh, large turnout that we have here. My name is Henry Tan. Um, I think I know most of you. I'm the director for medical student education and psychiatry. And um, uh, Lauren Churin and I have uh, uh, contributed a little bit to the work of, um, of uh, inviting you all here. So um, I want to just give a shout out to uh, Lauren Chur. It is my great pleasure and honor to be able to introduce Rusty Selix as a um, as a medical director of a Mental Health Services Act clinic. Uh, we've seen from the ground level what the act that he and his colleagues have put together have has done to uh, people on the ground level, and so uh, it is it is a, a tremendous pleasure for me to be up here to introduce him. So, Mr. Selix is the original co-author, along with Daryl Steinberg, and leader of the Proposition 63 campaign. This is the Mental Health Services Act. Uh, he's been a leading expert in mental health policy and finance for the past 25 years and uh, has been involved in state and local government in policy and finance for the past 35 years. After graduating from our very own UC Davis uh, Law School, 
he became a deputy uh, city attorney for the city of Sacramento, working on issues primarily related to land use, environment, housing, and public works. And I think that all these these kinds of issues are very relevant for our mental health community um, because they intersect so much with uh, the lives of, of our, our folks. Um, he afterwards became a lobbyist at the state capitol for the League of uh, California Cities to continue to focus on land use, environment, and transportation and housing issues. During this time, he was also elected as the chairman for the State Bar's Committee on Environmental Law. Now, in 1986, Mr. Selig started to serve on the California Council for Community Mental Health Agencies, and this was where he, uh, he started the work on the Mental Health Services Act. Currently, he serves as the Executive Director for Mental Health America of California. Um, I know a lot of the students here have asked uh, various faculty members, you know, what are we doing to change the way we do mental health? What are we doing on a systems level? Uh, our students see, Mr. Selix, uh, what's going on at a patient level, and many of them are, um, I, I see as future leaders in um, the care for our uh, California population, and so I think it's a real treat for them to be able to uh, hear you speak and uh, tell us about the story for Proposition 63. So uh, let's give a hand for Mr. Selix. Thank you. So, so thank you, and, and so pleased that you're working in our public mental health system in a Prop 63-funded clinic. So all of you students here, how many of you plan to go to work in our system? And if you don't, why not? What, what do we have to do to recruit you? We have a shortage of, uh, of psychiatrists, uh, desperately so. All right, so I start off with this. You want to learn about health care policy, and so the most important thing to know is that when it comes to a lot of issues, it's easier to get a majority vote of 15 million voters than it is to get a two-thirds vote of 120 legislators. Um, and uh, it, it's, the fact is all um, major revenue increases for anything have come this way. You'll find that when you get to the November elections this year, there will be a dozen or more initiatives that will be on the ballot, many of whom are, are, are for uh, health purposes and many of which are, are raising money. There's going to be a tobacco tax measure. There will be a legalization of marijuana measure. There might be some kind of managed care organization tax if the legislature doesn't get that all figured out. So what's it take to do that, to get something on the ballot? It only costs $200 to get the uh, attorney general to put a, a ballot measure uh, on to allow you to collect signatures. Then you need 500,000 signatures. The cost of getting on the ballot is actually approximately $2 million. That was actually the hardest part of Prop 63. Um, the mental health community isn't known for having deep pockets. We're not the hospital association, and we're not a big trade union. Those are the healthcare groups and education groups that, that have tended to do these kinds of initiatives. But we had another problem, and, and those of you who are, who are psychiatrists probably know the psyche of people in mental health. There's kind of a can anything good ever happen to us mindset, um, which caused them to believe when I showed them the initial um, analysis that we could get this passed, the general said, no, that this can't pass. 
And so that was the other hard part was convincing the mental health community, no, if we can come up with $2 million, we really, this can pass. And the voters will support this and it can be done. Interesting that when you talk to all of the, and for example, if you talk to newspaper editorial boards, every single newspaper editorial board editorialize against us. Um, because they prefer flexible funding that you shouldn't earmark money for a specific purpose. Uh, but the fact is when you go, they don't believe in ballot box budgeting. That was the theme of most of the editorials. And we knew that would be their bottom line, but we wanted them to acknowledge that this was a problem that needed to be solved. And every editorial, um, we got that, even though they all editorialized against it because they don't prefer that. But we knew that the voters would pay no attention to that. They do not trust the legislature as to how their money should be spent. They would much rather make the decisions themselves and make financial decisions through what's called direct democracy or the ballot box. Um, so while the so-called experts don't like ballot box budgeting, that's not the view of the citizenry of California. Eighty percent prefer ballot box budgeting. And, and really it was started by a, something going the opposite direction, which is the tax-cutting measure um, for those of us old enough to remember Proposition 13, appropriately numbered in 1978, which um, cut um, public education funding by 75%, um, took California from the top five states in education funding to the bottom five uh, overnight. And, um, but it proved that the voters wanted to make major financial decisions themselves rather than having them made by the legislature. So what was the key to why this would pass and what was it all about? So we started, as you have to do when you want to do direct democracy, you have to do focus groups of people to find out what they would think. And so we started with, we did 10 focus groups all together at one time and another time. And uh, in each of them, we started by putting the word mental health on a, a flipboard. And we asked in the focus groups, what comes to mind? And in all 10 focus groups, the first words uttered was street people in every single group. That was the first thing anybody said. And uh, why was that? Well, because of the understanding that that's what happened when the state emptied out the hospitals and basically dumped people on the street. And the sense is street people are people with severe mental illness, and it bothered people. It bothered everyone. Um, Everyone also, actually there are public opinion polls that 54% of the voters had a family member or a close friend who suffered from severe mental illness. How many of you are in that 54%? Raise your hand. So yeah, I'd say we're a little over 50%. That proves it. It's a, it's a stealth issue in that regard because when the politicians ask voters what's really important to you, and those of you who are following all the presidential campaigns and when you get into even local or state campaigns, no one talks about mental health. Daryl Steinberg did, but not very many do. Um, because it's not the things that the public says they care about. They say they care about public safety, they care about education, they care about roads. So, but when you ask a very different question, when you ask and you list 20 subjects, on which things should government be spending more, less, or about the same? And you rank, you rank them as to what percentage said something needs more money. Mental health came in second out of 20 topics. The only thing that came out ahead of it was the frail elderly. 
it came out ahead of education, ahead of public safety, ahead of roads, ahead of all the, the things that tend to be what the public says they care most about. And so that's why we knew this could pass. Um, and that's what our, our public opinion polling told us. Um, the, the tricky part, of course, was the, the funding source was the tax. Turns out people did not have a problem voting for a tax increase, especially one that, as everyone says, the, the tax on ours is you have to have a million dollars of taxable income to, to before you start to pay this tax, and then it's above that. And everyone says the tax we want to pay, because you want to get into that group, and no one who is in that group, it doesn't make much difference to them if they make $2 million, whether they're paying $10,000 more in taxes. Um, not that it's a group you could even pull, because it's one-tenth of 1% 1 of the population. But the, the sense is, the key to us is we couldn't raise the kind of money that, that could overcome well-funded opposition. So if we taxed the other popular taxes or sin taxes, tobacco does well, alcohol not so well because 10% of the population smokes but 75% drinks. So that one doesn't go. And, um, and then various other kinds of specialized taxes. So what you've seen is tobacco taxes and more general high-income taxes. There's a the perception that, that the rich um, aren't paying enough in taxes and it turns out that most of the rich don't have to pay taxes based on their income. Anyway, I'm getting too much into the weeds about all that stuff, but some of the politics about how we came up with this funding source and all of that was that's what the public opinion told us. So the other key thing that we found is even if you've picked this funding source, we were the first to succeed. Two, okay, one before us and one after us did not succeed in this. The first one to succeed in this funding source after ours was the governor's Proposition 30 in 2012 that mainly funds education, is that the voters, even if they're okay with the tax, aren't going to vote for something unless they're convinced it's really going to go to something good. And Daryl Steinberg and I, when we started working together in, in 1999, his first bill was Outreach to Homeless, AB 34, because he had been frustrated when he'd been on the city council that seemed to be nothing the city could do. Um, and the, the people that needed help had mental illnesses and they needed care. And so we started a pilot project um, in three communities, Sacramento being one of them, Los Angeles being the uh, second, and Modesto being the third, to test a model that had been developed in the late 80s as an alternative to state hospital placements for people with severe mental illness to see if it could work for homeless people and to see if they could be successfully engaged. And the... The psychiatrist um, told us it won't work, that, that homeless don't want to be helped, that only 50% will, will, will respond. The parents said the same thing, and the police said the same thing. Now, what do those three groups have in common? They all represent authority figures to the people on the streets, and it turned out that was not the way you were going to succeed. You had to succeed with someone that they could come to trust as a colleague. And so social workers and former homeless were the key outreach workers in the model that worked best. And that was tested. And the result was over 90% wanted to participate in the program. And the results, not surprising, reduced hospitalizations and incarcerations. It succeeded so well um, that we were able to get additional state money the next year, expanded from three to 38 counties. 
And then we had the, the, the dot-com bubble burst, and the state budget went from surplus to deficit in 2001, and it became clear we weren't going to get any more um, expansion money out of the legislature, and so the ballot measure was the only way we could take this to scale. We really thought that because it could do all those things, that the state could ramp it up each year through the budget process, but we discovered not only could that only happen in, in up years when the, when the state has a budget surplus, but also getting more than, quote, our historic fair share of the budget was not ever going to happen. So Prop 63 doubled the state investment in mental health. And we were never going to get a 100% increase through the legislature because it was like, well, if you're 2% of the budget, when we increase things, maybe you'll get 3%, but you're not going to get a of the increase, but you're not going to get the kind of increase you need to do this. So this was the only way it could be done. So um, the California Hospital Association um, plans its budget strategies based on anticipating going to the ballot box in every election cycle. They, they have money set aside to do this. So does uh, the largest public employees union in healthcare, SEIU. So does the California Medical Association, and so does the California Teachers Association. They all think, in terms of public dollars, that this is you get more done through the ballot box than you do through the legislature. So what was it funding? So the Prop 34, the AB 34 model was the main thing. Our estimated at the time, and this was in 2002, was it would cost $500 million, and we had to add 60,000 people. Um, and then we wanted to do uh, go from fail first to help first. We have what is commonly known as a fail first system. The people in the public mental health system, 90% of them have hit rock bottom and failed somewhere first with kids, special education, child welfare, juvenile justice, or a suicide attempt in the hospital. Those were the four entries into the system. Nobody came in the system the way the healthcare system is designed. You go to your primary care doctor, you get evaluated for your behavioral health needs, you get referred to a specialist, and you go to the specialist. You start from the bottom up. No, we start from the top down. We start from crisis and try to put together. Adults, almost all adults before they were seen in the system had been both hospitalized and incarcerated, and most were homeless at one time or another. That was what we wanted to end and try to get help earlier. We started a prevention and early intervention program, and the early psychosis programs that UC Davis has led the way on were one of the few things that we already knew worked um, when we started this. We also, as we were going to expand, need to set aside money for workforce, capital facilities, technology, and then set aside money for innovation because we knew that once we got this money, even for pilot programs like AB 34, even in good years, we would be last in line trying to get new dollars for new pilot programs because we had Prop 63 and we knew the legislature would tell us use your Prop 63 money, so we decided to set aside 5% of it for innovation. And that was it, uh, money for the state to do planning, evaluation, oversight, that was another 5%, and tax the millionaires to pay for it. Funding categories. Um, community services and supports is, the, is what the, the category for the um, people that have severe mental illnesses. Now, this is almost all for adults because children through Medi-Cal and special education have entitlements that didn't require um, new funding from the state. 
However, there's a few gaps that it closes, but generally speaking, this is mainly for adults. Uh, the prevention and early intervention, 20%, and you probably can't see that little red plus, but the way we wrote it is it's a minimum of 20%, and then we allow on a county-by-county county basis or statewide that 20% to be increased once you can demonstrate that putting more money into prevention and early intervention will pay for itself with dollar-for-dollar dollar savings and reduce costs of the higher-cost, high-end services. Uh, we've been convinced in the from the beginning that we would eventually reach that place. We're still not there yet for, for um, due to the funding problems. I, I, I never would have foreseen that 10 years after the act, we'd still be basically at the starting gate. But unfortunately, the recession that hit this state in 2008 um, caused the revenue to drop. We lost 50% of our funding. And we also lost a lot of the underlying funding that was built on. So Prop 63 is about $2 billion. The other state funding is about $2 billion. But that $2 billion should have been $3 billion if the economy had been healthy and grew steadily from, from 2000 to 2005. So the fact is the, the roughly billion dollars that was being spent, um, all it really did was offset the uh, $700 million a year in losses. We have very little new funding to show as a result of it. So we still need, even with $2 billion coming in now, we still need more money. We don't feel that $2 billion is enough to do the job. Um, we have some prospects on some new federal programs that can help. And uh, we have to hope that the governor is wrong. Um, the governor, in a speech he just gave this morning, which is the same one he gave when he introduced the budget two weeks ago, said, the law of averages says the next recession is right around the corner. Therefore, we should not be spending the revenues that are coming in now. We should be banking it for the future. Prop 63 has built into it a, a set of reserves. So we have money set aside for the recession. But um, So we're not going to have to cut programs when the recession comes. But we need to grow. And uh, we need to grow because we, we estimate that there's still another 50,000 people with very severe mental illnesses with a cost now it, where it, it's uh, instead of uh, 8,000 per person, it's now probably 15,000 per person of state dollars that it will cost to serve them, and still an estimated 50 or 60,000 that we need to get to. Um, one of the other challenges we have um, is that California is unfortunately a magnet for homeless people. Um, we have the mildest weather. It's been documented that the city of Chicago sends homeless people to California in the winter, and the city of Phoenix sends them in the summer. And uh, they're happy to go. It's not, they're not being forced to go. They're offered a bus ticket, and they happily take it. And uh, that's a challenge for us, because we obviously aren't getting money from the other states. Um, so that the, the need continues to expand. And uh, so this model, community service supports, is the same model that came from that 1980s model of whatever it takes flexible funding. We also found that was a real key in serving homeless people because when you go to a homeless person, as a doctor would, and say, you, you are sick, you need to take this medicine, you're not going to get a very positive response. Instead, if you say, how are you doing? What can I help you with? Can I have a bed to sleep in? Can I have some food? Can I have some clothing? You offer them that, then the doctor talks to them when they're off the street, and then they do want the medicine, then they do want to be helped, then they do want to be able to work. But while they're on the street, um, not, not a very high priority. In fact, 
I think the only kind of medicine they really want is something that's going to make them numb or high and, 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 and take their misery off their minds. And um, that's been, you know, well documented. So we called it a full-service partnership. Um, SEDSMI, those are mental health terms, serious emotional disturbance, severe mental illness. Um, wellness centers, as people start to recover, um, they don't necessarily need the intensive service, but also places where um, they're led by the people with mental illnesses themselves to, to provide support to one another and help them manage the rest of their life. So the case management and care coordination is for the medical parts of care, but the wellness centers and other things is for management of the rest of their lives so they can regain life skills that, that the years of untreated mental illness. Um, Well-known White House report in 2003 um, said that there's an average of six years delay from the onset of a mental illness before treatment starts. Again, this fail-first dynamic. And... Uh, so regaining life skills that have been lost over those six years. Prevention and early intervention is really the most exciting part of it all, um, but it's also the part that we knew the least about when we were writing it. Um, I only knew of two things that we knew would work in prevention and early intervention when we were writing the act in 2002. One was the early psychosis programs, which were at that time only in a few foreign countries as, as pilot academic programs. Um, but we knew that those worked, and some school-based programs, a kindergarten through third grade program known as the Early Mental Health Initiative, um, both of which succeeded in keeping people from becoming disabled. What we now know is that you really want to ramp it up in primary care and schools, um, and schools at all levels, including colleges, that, that that's where you can catch people early on and put systems in place to, to build it. And... Uh, the Affordable Care Act helps. Um, there's a new federal um, Medi-Cal waiver known as the Section 1115 waiver that's going to create whole-person health care pilots in the counties with some extra federal money and a plan to do complete integration of behavioral health in primary care and bi-directional integration, which means bringing primary care clinicians to the mental health centers because the people with severe mental illnesses don't do very well when they go to primary care for a variety of reasons. And so you need to place clinicians on those sites and, and bring that together because they have the worst health care outcomes. A 2008 study said that people with severe mental illness among Medicaid recipients died on average 25 years younger, had five times the rate of all the major chronic um, and life-threatening medical conditions uh, outside of mental illness. And so there's a recognition that this pays for itself to make sure this all happens. What should happen in primary care is everyone that goes into primary care, and, and for people who don't have a regular primary care doctor comes into the emergency room, should be have all of their behavioral health needs evaluated. And if the evaluation shows that there's a need for care, that something happens then and there that they get, they get connected to a professional, a mental health professional, who can do a fuller evaluation than the, than the nine-question screen and, and get them started in care. Reducing disparities is huge. Um, the Medi-Cal penetration rate for Latinos, and by the way, for Asians, it's about the same, uh, three or four percent as compared to Caucasian and African-American, which is over 10 percent 
in, in mental health services for Medi-Cal. Why is that? The California Health Information Survey, uh, or CHIS, done by UCLA, shows that when you ask people if they would seek mental health care, the high is African Americans at 40%, followed by Caucasian at 30%, Latino 15%, Asian 7% will seek care when they know that they or a family member has a mental health problem. The stigma against mental illness is overwhelming, and that's why you have to intercept people when they're not looking for mental health care, when they're looking to succeed in school, when they're looking at their overall health and, and get that care started. We find once you get people engaged, they find that the help does, does work, but you have to destigmatize it by approaching it in other ways and reduce these disparities. Innovations, I wish I could say more about this now. I'm still waiting for the first reports of um, projects done with innovation dollars. 5% uh, of the money is for that. The first round of projects is now in. The evaluations on them, I'm told, are done, but the statewide report putting it all together isn't done yet, and so I really have nothing to tell you other than the fact that um, you all are bright young people um, with ideas, and this is wide open money. Um, and not and just, not just for the young people. We've got some faculty members here that are very creative. They, they, they should be thinking about this, and not just here in Sacramento. You, um, I would think that the UCs could be major contributors to the ideas for how to spend our innovation dollars. Um, it's 5% of the money, and it's for anything. The only limitation is it can't be something that's already being done. Um, and that's it. So anything new. Education and training is a huge issue, which is one of my motivations for coming to talk to you all. We need more of you. Um, we, it is very, very hard to attract and retain the workforce we need, and as we try to expand, it gets even harder. Um, there was money set aside. Initially, those funds were exhausted. Now it's up to the counties to, to come up with the money to, to keep it going. We can still get where we want to go. Um, I, it's very frustrating that, that after getting this measure passed and getting all this new money, that we still have the very significant numbers of homeless and unmet needs that we have across the state, and that we don't seem to have made significant progress. The feeling is the Affordable Care Act helped a lot. That brought about $500 million in, in the uh, expansion population. And uh, it, it conceptually can also make some of the prevention early intervention work. And so we can still get there, but we need more money and more integration and more of the um, models of primary care and schools, um, you know, intercepting people early and then, you know, more of the focus on work. We know the bottom line is the programs are working exactly the way we thought they would. So we, we've been true to our word to the voters. The money is going for the intended purposes, but we're just not there yet. And uh, we have to hope that the economy stays strong. Uh, Daryl Steinberg says we're not going back to the voters for more money. We're not going to do this again. So it would be hard to do again if we had to. But um, I don't think we have to. I think that, that, that we can get there. So that, I want to stop there. Um, I kind of raced through all of this. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.